Ho Ho 7, festive greetings and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go merrily undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the naughty or nice list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, and I did not sign off on this intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gets better. So this week we are not joined by one, but we are joined by two guests. Firstly, Cam, can you hear those Shea bells ring ding dingling? <laughs> it can only mean one thing. It is, of course, Shayla Miller. She's back. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. I've got my malt whiskey and branch water ready. <laughs> Hell yes. And joining her, for the first time hailing from the misty mountains of Scotland, he describes himself as more of a problem eliminator, and he is here to show us what's really under his kilt. It's Stephen Carty. Even less, thank you for that sterling introduction. I am broadcasting from my rainy castle in Scotland. You might have seen it at the start of the world is not enough. They, they rented it for my family. Oh, do you have a uh, portrait of former M's hanging on the wall? All over the place. Dench is above my bed. That's what I would expect. That's a, that's a whole other story right there. <laughs> Bernard Lee in the bathroom, Dench above the bed. That's always the way it's got to go. And you don't want to know where Robert Brown is. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask. Don't, don't tell. tell. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, Shayla, firstly, welcome back to the show. You, of course, joined us for our Pierce Brosnan roundtable. We're bringing you back for more Bond, but this time a different Bond. A very different bond and a bond that I don't give much love to. And that might have changed, but we'll find mm. out. Interesting. Mm. And <laughs> yeah. Stephen, your first time here. So we haven't really got to know you yet. Listeners haven't got to know you. So a couple of quick questions. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, I, you work for uh, Radio Times, BBC Scotland. But going back to your sort of love of Bond and, and spy films, how did that get started? Uh, quite early. Um, just one night. Uh, my dad said, oh, Dr. Knows on the TV, you you'll like this. This is James Bond. You should watch this. Um, I was way too young for it. Completely, completely inappropriate for my dad to say, you should be watching this, you know, big scary tarantulas and Bond gunning down an unarmed man. But um, I was really drawn into it really quickly. I must have been one of those sort of really disturbed, dark children that loved all that sort of stuff. And I didn't watch them in order over the years. I just think if you're of a certain age, I don't know, think any of you guys are as old as me, but back in the day the you know bond films were on tv all the time and i just used to record them and then watch them over and over and over and when i became a film critic i actually had to distance myself from bond i had stopped watching them for a few years because i'd watched them so many times they'd lost meaning you know when you watch something so many times you know every word that's coming next and it's almost like you've seen it too much that nothing matters anymore because you're so familiar with it so i took two, three years away from Bond completely. And then at the start of lockdown, I, I watched them all again. Oh, it was it was magnificent. It was like watching them for the first time again, seeing seeing Roger's eyebrow flex for the first time again. It was like, like a newborn eyebrow and just revisiting them all was, it, it was, it was good and it was bad because there was films that I loved as a kid. And when I revisit them, some didn't hold up. And then some I had a new appreciation for. Like when I was young, I never really liked From Russia With Love or on Her Majesty's. But I think that's quite common for Bond fans is that some films are maybe not suited to young kids. You know, when you're young, you want to see the the big volcanoes and the cars with the magnets and you want to see the piranhas and you want to see all that stuff when you're young. 
And then I think when you get older, you maybe have an appreciation for the slower paced ones like on Her Majesty's. Yeah, like when I was a kid, Dr. No bored me to death. Like I was like, why Why would I be watching this one when I can watch Roger Moore face off against Jaws and Spy Who Loved Me? And now I love watching Bond walk through hallways. I don't know. It's <laughs> aging, I guess. Um, well, you know, further on from that, obviously you said you walked away from Bond for a while and you, you, now you've come back to it. And welcome back to The Fold. But, you know, who is your Bond? Who is my Bond? Uh, Sean Connery. It has to be. Um, and that, that's not an, an Edinburgh thing or a Scotland thing or even, or even an age thing. It's just, I just think he's got everything. Um, he's Well, when I say he's got everything, uh, that might be, let me explain that a bit further. I think everyone has their own Bond and their own Bond is measured by the actor who has the things that they personally look for. I think fans that potentially lean towards humour and fun and escapism, if you ask them who their Bond is, it's likely to be Roger Moore, I would imagine. Um, if you want, if you ask someone who likes the Fleming novels and who wants something a bit darker and a bit grittier, chances are they'll, they'll say Timothy Dalton. And, and just for me, Connery's got all the stuff that I personally look for in a Bond, but there's none that I really hate. There's none that I don't like. There's none that I would say I don't enjoy watching. I think there's something there for everyone and for every occasion. If I'm feeling a bit flippant, I'll put on Roger. If I'm feeling a bit darker, I'll put on Dalton. But if you if you ask me, Walter PPK to the head, who's my bond? It's got to be. It's, for me, it's Connery. Am I alone here? There was a lot of blank faces there. Am I the only one who likes Connery here? No, no. no um, I love I always Connery. Say, yeah, I always say my favorite is Roger Moore, but the best is Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. I'm probably in the same boat as that I would say the, the best is Sean Connery. My favorite is Piers Brosnan, but I think that's just because Brosnan was my first. And that would be me as well. I'm the same as Scott. Okay, so we're, we're in a good team here. We seem to have, have got the full lineup, but there's one man we haven't really spoken about. And uh, Cam, lead us in. Yes, well, this week we are talking about... <laughs> On Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> There's no way around. Normally I have to sing with these intros, and this one, it, it had me stumped, Scott, until just now. <laughs> Why didn't you ask me? I could have come up with a tune for you or something. That was that was awful. We should take that again. That was terrible. Why? You could sing, do you know how Christmas trees are grown? Oh, la, true, la, true. La, 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 la. <laughs> Oh no! I want you to leave it in. I was just uh, mostly to put you on the spot, but oh, yeah, that was that was that was pretty bad. So thanks for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. I like to keep the streak going of tone deaf uh, Bond song recreations. Oh yeah, you've nailed it then. Absolutely you. nailed it. But thank you. Okay, so we're uh, we're tackling on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and it's it's about time we got around to it. Hmm. I think what we'll do is we'll have the letterbox.com synopsis, and then we'll go to our past experiences with it. Mm-hmm. So here we are, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Far up, far out, far more, James Bond 007 is back. James Bond tracks his arch-nemesis, Ernst Blofeld, to a mountaintop retreat where he is training an army of beautiful, lethal women. Along the way, Bond falls for an Italian contessa, Tracy Draco, and marries her in order to get closer to Blofeld. There we have it. Is, it, is that why he marries her? I don't think so. Uh, that's not why he marries her, no. No. Mm, that's strange. But okay, so I'll go last. I want to hear from, let's go from the way I see it on the screen. So Shayla first. What was your first experience with On Her Majesty's Secret Service? 
I actually don't really remember, but I assume my not remembering means that I watched it too young and I just thought it was boring. Um, and But every time I've watched it since, I've kind of like grown in appreciation. And then watching it for this podcast, now I have a whole new appreciation and it just like kind of clicked with me, which is why I love watching Bond films and watching films over and over again, because you just never know what you're going to notice that you didn't notice before. But yeah, I definitely wasn't a fan as a kid, but I'm, I definitely love it now. Okay. What about you, Stephen? First memories of watching On Her Majesty's and, and, and experiencing the Lazenby experience? <laughs> um, I don't really have, like, just like what Sheila said there, I don't really have any memories of watching it as a kid. I think it was probably the one that I watched the, the least. Um, and before, you know, I said I took some break away from Bond and then I revisit them at the start of lockdown. When I did that, before I watched them all, I thought I'm going to make a sort of tentative ranking from memory and then see how that holds up. And I had on Her Majesty's third bottom, I think, because I just didn't have any memories of it. Um, and then once I watched it at the start of lockdown, I, I thought, you know what? There's actually quite a lot to enjoy in this film. And I've watched it again and again and again with a mindset towards... I want to love this film, you know, because a lot of Bond purists love it and rate it as one of the favorites. So I always find myself when I'm in that position, if there's a film or something that a lot of fans love and I don't, I always want to know why I'm thinking, I always feel like I'm missing out. So like, what am I missing out on? What are they seeing that I'm not? I almost feel like it's my not a job, but you know, I want to, I want to see what they're seeing. So I watched Honor Majesties over and over again in lockdown and I just gradually fell in love with aspects of it. I think if you if you asked casual viewers about On Her Majesty's, I suspect that most people would describe it as oh the one with the the one with the guy who only did one Bond movie, which is is a little bit unfair, but it's also understandable. Um, but before any listeners write me off or put me in Bond fan jail, it's now <laughs> crept into my top ten. I still I think I've actually got a an unusual position when it comes to the fandom of this film because I think there's some fans that have it at the bottom of the ranking because they can't see past George or they think the editing's a bit too weird for them or it's too slow and boring or whatever. And I think there's a lot of purists who rate it as, you know, the cream of the crop right up at the top, one of the best, and you're uh, an idiot if you don't like it. I can see where both parties are coming from. There, there are some elements for me that I still can't get past, but I think there's loads in this film that really, really work and is, is worth celebrating. Okay. Um, well, Cam, what about you? Your first experience of One of Her Majesties? I actually recall this one really vividly. So I was someone who grew up watching Bond movies, you know, Roger Moore films, some of the Conneries, uh, the Daltons. And my friend Mark had never seen a Bond movie. And I think this might have been when GoldenEye had been announced or something. Like, there was a reason I wanted to get him into Bond. And I feel like it was because of the Brosnan films coming out. Maybe he'd just been cast or something. So I was like, Mark, we're going to start you on the Bond films and we're going to watch them all. And so we went to the video store and I picked up Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which I'd never seen before because I was like, well, this is as good a place as any and I've never seen it. So this will be awesome. And I sat Mark down for a two and a half hour mod uh, odyssey. And I remember when he we were done, he was like, that was boring as hell. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, you know, it's a little different than a lot of the ones I've seen. Uh, and he was like, nothing happened in that movie forever. And I'm like, 
Yeah, well, so I didn't revisit this movie actually for quite a while, probably until they put out um, a, um, you know, a new series of the VHS tapes and I picked them up. And it wasn't until probably eesh, maybe like four or five years later that I gave it a second shot. And it's one that I over time have watched many more times and I think had a better sense as to what it is versus back then where I was like, this isn't like Spy Who Loved Me. Yes, definitely, a, definitely a wee bit different from Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, yeah, I think we could all agree that one. Yeah. Um, for me, it was I avoided it. I avoided watching this thing. It was it was the film that had the guy who didn't do very well and didn't come back for another film. So I, I wrote it off, and I remember watching it as part of my grand rewatch, much like Stephen did actually, and and that was the first time I experienced it. And it was literally watching it in a row after you only lived twice, and I thought. This is a step up from You Only Live Twice, but he's not my Bond. Like, I don't, I don't get the connection. Uh, but it looks really nice. And I was watching it on Blu-ray, I think. So it looks stunning, and it is a stunning film. But it didn't really, um, didn't really connect with me too much until I watched it the second time, and it started to go up in my rankings, which I think it seems to be a consensus that we're all having. Yeah. I, I don't think it's one that on first go-around, really grabs a lot of people. I'm sure there's some out there who the first time they saw it fell in love, but even back in the day, I don't think many people walked out of this one being like, this was my favorite Bond movie. And I find that it takes a lot of, like, attention. Like, you have to sit down and really focus. The second, Like, I watched it last night, and I put the subtitles on just to make sure I was, like, getting it all. And, the like, the dialogue is incredible, and you really have to listen to it, and there's a lot of really cool like you know cool stuff in it so it definitely is one you really have to like focus on I, th I think yeah like when I showed it to my friend Mark we were like 12 or 13 it was not the movie for 12 or 13 year olds <laughs> yeah no <laughs> I can imagine that because if you come into this film with the common perception of Bond that Bond is big and silly and escapist and about adventure and Bond saving the world with gadgets if if that's your idea and impression of Bond, and that that is to a lot of people. If you ask a lot of people, describe what a Bond film is, they'll describe You Only Live Twice or The Spy Who Loved Me in, in abstract terms to, to many, many people, that is what Bond is. And then if you showed them this film, like I know if I showed this film to my mom and dad, they would be, that's not Bond. Is this a Bond film? It's, it's not proper Bond. I think a lot of people would think that, but it's it's so worthwhile revisiting and, and trying to like, I know you shouldn't have to try to like a film, but I feel like, you know, when you're younger and you, you taste alcohol for the first time and your mates or whoever says, oh, it's fine, you'll develop a taste for it. And the, I remember the first time I had a sip of beer, I thought, that's disgusting. I'm never going to drink that again. But then after a few parties, you're thinking, this beer is great. Why have I never tasted this before? I'm definitely going to have more of this stuff. And I feel On Her Majesty's was a little like that for me. First viewing, ah, no, this is not Bond. Why am I? Where's Roger? Where's, you know, where's the horse's bum coming out of the back of the, the hangar? Why is, he, why is he not getting into the Acrostar jet? Where's that stuff? But when I developed a taste for this film, I, I, I've got it in this unique bracket where just what Shayla was saying a second ago, it's a film where you maybe have to be in the mood for. It's not, you know, I'm feeling a bit hungover on a Sunday afternoon and I want to watch A View to a Kill. It's, right, it's Christmas Eve, I'm in a mood for some classic Bond and you sit down and you soak it in. Well, and that, that's what I think about when it comes to this film. And we'll get to my thoughts on the film now in a little bit. But it's really one of those, we all have, bands that we like music that we like and there's always an album from that band that only the fans like now scott 
you're wearing a Metallica shirt, and so I assume you're referring to either Lulu or Saint Anger. <laughs> Absolutely Saint Anger. I, I love that empty sounding snare drum. It's great. Awesome. Uh, it's round my neck, my friend. Mm. Um well okay, Cam. What I need is a man to dominate me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> With facts, so could you give me some information on uh, on Her Majesty's and, and how it happened? Yeah, for sure. So um, this one was originally going to shoot after Goldfinger. So they had Richard Maybaum adapt it. He wanted to keep it very faithful to the novel, which was considered one of Ian Fleming's best. And um, what happened was they figured out all the deal with Thunderball, and so that wound up happening instead. And they kept kind of kicking it around, like they did consider also doing Honor Majesty's in place of You Only Live Twice. But because of locations, they ended up going with You Only Live Twice just because of the Swiss Alps that time of year didn't really work out for shooting on Her Majesty's First, which would have made the whole Blofeld story a little simpler and a little easier to understand. But nonetheless, it ended up getting pushed down the road. And um, so they brought on Peter Hunt uh, to direct this film. He was an editor who'd obviously been very influential in shaping the visual style of Bond films up until then. And, um, you know, he'd really never done a film as a directorial effort before. This was his debut, which is a pretty impressive debut considering just the scale involved. He would go on to do a lot of movies that just, you know, they're kind of like B-movies, like things like um, Shout at the Devil with Roger Moore. He also did Wild Geese 2 with uh, Barbara Carrera. And he also did a movie called Assassination with Charles Bronson that I watched like maybe three months ago on a whim. And um, not great. Not great. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, yeah. You look at it and you're like, "How did the same person that shot Honor Majesties make Assassination?" And obviously, there's a money difference, but it's just like visual style alone is a huge leap between the two. So very strange. But nonetheless, um, Connery was clearly out after you only live twice, and so Eon was like, "We need a new Bond," and what? proceeded from there was just a massive cattle call to try to find a new bond they apparently auditioned 413 actors for the role it was about on the level if not bigger of when they were looking for young anakin for phantom menace wow i didn't realize actually i didn't realize the hunt for anakin was uh was that arduous yeah it was crazy and same with actually you know what same with hayden christensen they were like scouting the world for like kids to play young Anakin. Yippee! Well, they really struck gold there. (laughs) Are you an angel? (laughs) Yippee! (laughs) So they tested a ton of other actors. Um, They offered it to Roger Moore, who um, was busy with the Saint at the time. Timothy Dalton was talked to, but he felt he was too young. Um, They talked to Adam West, who was doing Batman uh, at the time. Oh, I'd have loved to have seen that. Oh, it would have been crazy. Part of me would have loved to have seen Adam West as Batman. I, I, Bond, I can't imagine it, but part of me just wishes there was an alternate universe somewhere with Adam West being Bond. He would have felt like Roger Moore before Roger Moore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then just a ton of other actors. But they came across George Lazenby. Uh, at the time, he was a model best known for TV spots for Fry's Turkish Delight. Now, Scott, being British, I assume you're very familiar with these. I, I just ate one before coming on here. It's delicious. <laughs> now, Lazenby talked his way into a meeting with Seltzman. And, like, 
whenever you're talking about the history of events surrounding George Lazenby, they get very, um, there's no single one story. You hear many different stories. So the version you often hear is he wanted the Bond job, so he went and got a suit tailor-made to look exactly like Sean Connery, went and got a haircut just like Bond, and went in and talked to Harry Saltzman. That's the version that seems to be the popular version, but there's other variations about running into people at barber salons and things like this. So uh, you can watch the movie Becoming Bond, which is the documentary on George Lazenby and his work as James Bond, and you just get the sense George Lazenby likes to tell some tall tales. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really fun documentary, but uh, yeah, I think it's, it's grasp on the truth is uh, tenuous. Yes. And so um, he went to this interview with Seltzman and lied his basically ass off. He told them he was a ski instructor, a karate expert, that he'd done films in Hong Kong and in Germany. <laughs> so he had a lot of international fame. And he basically said he just gave them all of these facts that they knew he could, like, they couldn't double check. That they'd be like, I guess if he says he's, like, popular in Germany, I guess we're too lazy to figure that out. I don't know. <laughs> it just sounds like the scene in Friends where Joey says he can dance. Pretty much, yes. Yeah, yeah that, I, I, okay. That's how I pictured the, the interview going. All right. Yeah. So ultimately they gave it to him and they said it was his sexual prowess that really sold him. It was the fact that they just believed the confidence of this guy, just the arrogance he had, you know, applying for this job and talking his way into the offices. They were like, this guy can be James Bond. And I got the sense just from reading about it, that like Peter Hunt was actually pretty okay with signing off on this as well, because he really liked the idea, I think, of crafting a Bond actor. So I think as long as it was someone he felt could do the action and pull off sort of the dramatic moments, he was okay with kind of going along with whoever they wanted. Well, your sexual prowess obviously worked on me and got me to do this podcast, so... That's right, that's right. And I also told you I was a ski instructor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to walk away from that one. Yeah. There's too many lines. Yeah. So, um, as I said, like, the early drafts of this were... Pr they wanted to stick close to the script. There was a version that involved a monkey... So, um, originally Bond was going to meet a monkey that Blofeld had as a pet, and the pet monkey was going to help him save the day at the end. That is a movie I would have liked to have seen. <laughs> That's terrific. Was it, was it called Dr. No by any chance? Oh, I, I, yeah, I wonder if it was Dr. No returning, because originally they were looking at having Dr. No be a monkey, so. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure who's got this thing for monkeys in the, in the Bond writer's room, but. We've been robbed. We've sure. never gotten one. I can't, I can't stand for that. I know. I need a monkey now. You had Roger Moore in an ape suit in Octopussy, but it's not enough. Wait, what was, what was Doo Doo? Doo Doo? Bunny? In no time. Oh, yeah, a rabbit. Was a, oh, it's a I bunny. Think. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. We've got a giant gorilla in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, that's right. That's ah. right. Yes. The now awkward moment where, yes, the woman turns into the gorilla. Yeah, we'll be talking about that movie uh, not too far down the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um... They had a couple of things that did change, though. Um, they originally were looking at having Bond be drastically injured and require facial reconstruction, which would explain why he looks like George Lazenby. Um, it would have been notable. Like, had they done that, it would have been kind of crazy. But I think it would have been fun, honestly. Would you get the old, like, the, the reveal where they take the bandage off really slowly, it peels down his face, and then it's... Uh... And then, then, like, just George Lazenby mugs at the screen. Yes. Definitely. I'm sure it's been in a TV show before, but it, I, I would totally buy it. Yeah. 
And also, originally, there was not going to be a bobsled action sequence. It was going to be involving cable cars, but where Eagles Dare beat them to the punch. And so they did a rewrite to remove a cable car big finale action sequence. It's just nice to hear where Eagles Dare come back up again. That's, uh, yeah. that's a great film. And to be fair, that, uh, that bobsleigh scene was uh, shot by John Glenn, who we are speaking to later this week. So uh, on Friday, look out for that interview. That's right. That's our second Christmas present to you. That's right. And so during production, they did bring in a novelist, Simon Raven, to come in and just basically punch up dialogue. He doesn't have a screenplay credit, but he does have like an additional dialogue credit on the film it's because they weren't really that happy with the tracy and um, blofeld sequences so they brought him in to work on that dialogue that's pretty much his major contribution so what we had was the the finished product that they were happy with yeah yeah that's right save it scott oh. save it scott <laughs> <laughs> and no comment no comment speaking of tracy diana rigg was chosen over bridget bardot and Catherine deneuve um, they really liked the Avengers, so that really helped her get her foot in the door for this one. And it becomes very clear when you read about the production that they really wanted a very strong actress in this role because George Lazenby was obviously a model known for Turkish delight commercials, so they needed someone to really carry these dramatic relationship scenes. So if you look at those three, if they picked any of those three actresses, all of them are very strong talents. You keep hammering home these Turkish delights, Cam. Do you want some Turkish delights? I've had them before. Do you like them? Eh, they're okay. Well, they not really help my joke, so just move on, I guess. Okay, well then. <laughs> um, so, the production... You hear all these like kind of anecdotal stories about like how it was a rough production, but what I really found was it was mostly just that like Lazenby was a guy who, it sounds like, signed up because he thought it would be really fun to play James Bond. And it's not really that much fun to play James Bond. Ask Daniel Craig. <laughs> Uh, or, or Sean, immediately after You Only Live Twice. He was not having a blast. Exactly. Yeah. And this shoot was considerably longer. Peter Hunt was very exacting and really was putting a ton of effort into just the technical aspects of the movie. Obviously, you look at the editing in the film, but just all of the action felt much more ambitious. And that meant it was a lot more exhausting for the actor playing Bond. So this one was like, I think, maybe three months longer than most Bond productions. And... Uh, you know, Lazenby was a little bit of a rough and tumble guy who liked to party. And Diana Rigg, I think, was taking this very seriously. And so there was a little bit of friction here and there. It does sound, though, that Peter Hunt got tired of him real quick. Peter Hunt apparently was on set with some friends and Lazenby told his friends to leave. And that was pretty much the end of their relationship. Everything else was passed on through associates from then forward. Well, that sounds... uh frosty yes apparently uh lazenby was put up to it by someone else on the crew but nonetheless did not go over well when you're telling the director's friends to leave the set <laughs> and yeah there's a lot riding on this film this is the first time they've they've tried to recast bond mm -hmm. so i can understand why they were the, the words you used was exacting i can understand why they're very precious of of getting it right because replacing connery is is no easy feat no exactly and um when it came to stunts, Lazenby did a lot of them. And I think we'll talk about that when we actually break down the movie, just in terms of like the physicality of this Bond versus maybe what we saw in the previous Bond film, You Only Live Twice. And uh, it was often to the producer's chagrin where Lazenby was really hurling himself into some dangerous stunts. But 
we'll talk about the evidence of that later on. But uh, the other thing was, Lazenby claims he did every dialogue scene in one take. I have doubts about this. <laughs> I also have doubts about that. <laughs> so he's he's saying he only ever had one take whenever he was talking, even though most of his lines are dubbed. Yes. <laughs> There's an inconsistency in that story already. Yes. The whole thing is a little <laughs> sketchy. So as all Lazenby history goes, it's up for debate. So the movie had a budget of $8 million, domestically to 22.8, international 59, for a worldwide total of 82. Now that's in comparison to You Only Live Twice did 111.6. So this was a bit of a drop-off, and uh, part of the reason we only got one Lazenby. Um, also, it didn't help that on the press tour, he showed up with like hippie hair and a beard and everything, and just the Eon people were done. They were done. And his manager was telling him Bond was over anyway because the counterculture was taking over. And so there was many factors tying into why Lazenby didn't come back. So the num- the so the top three for this year, number one was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Number two was The Love Bug. Number three was Midnight Cowboy. Uh, Honor Majesty's landed number 11 between Goodbye Columbus and the very sexy I Am Curious Yellow which I don't know if anyone's ever heard of here, but it was quite the uh, saucy movie back in the day. Never heard of it. Could you could you please explain in great detail why it was so saucy? <laughs> I will let you look that one up. I'll bet you now it's probably pretty tame. I've actually never seen it. Okay. Uh, you got me excited for almost a moment. But, mm-hmm. Okay. You brought me back down. Thank you. And uh, really just the final note, um, you know, this movie um, did beat out Where Eagles Dare and Topaz, the Alfred Hitchcock film for spy films that year. And German actress Ilsa Steppet, who played Irma Bunt in the film, died less than a week after it was released. So that's pretty notable, actually. But uh, the future of Bond, we'll talk about when we get to Diamonds Are Forever, because obviously things would shape up quite differently coming off of a Lazy Bee film. But that can wait for another day, and that wraps me up on Honor Majesties. I'm still... I mean, maybe we'll talk about the legacy of, of Lazenby a little bit. And if we do a, a Lazenby special down the road, we'll do it again. But... I still find the whole him turning up to the premiere with a beard and them just being completely put off as just the weirdest story. Like, I, it's just a beard and it's just a premiere. I don't really. I but then I'm from a generation where people just had beards. Right. I wonder how much of it was just going off. You know, quotes I read from Peter Hunt and just how Eon was approaching the whole thing. I wonder how much of it was. We are hiring an actor to groom into James Bond. Like, we don't want to deal with the actor that was Sean Connery. We want essentially an action figure that we can put under contract forever and is going to become our James Bond. And when he wasn't playing along, it didn't go great. Uh, That's the kind of sense I get. It really feels like everyone wants to take credit for sculpting a new Bond versus hiring an actor with ideas who might have a different interpretation, which is what they would do Obviously, with Roger Moore and Sean Connery and Dalton and what have you. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, I suppose we should get down to what we think now. Um, what's it like, 50 years later or something like that? Or close to at this point? Yeah. What's the maths? Yeah, close to 50. Um, let's go in order of who I have on the screen. I'm going to throw it to... It's moved around. It's going to be Stephen up first. What do I think of the film overall now? Yeah, where where do you sit on it now? You've revisited for the show. Has it bumped up in your listings? Uh, and yeah, has has it evolved? Really, it's currently sitting tenth in my ranking, and 
Um, I think in many ways it's a it's a top tier Bond film. It has one of the very best endings in the series. I think it's got loads of brilliant scenes. It's, if I sat down and did something nerdy like my top thirty Bond moments or scenes or whatever, I think probably five or six of them would come from this film. Um, it looks great. It sounds great. Um, and there's so much to love about it. There are some things I can't get past. I'm hoping that in future viewings, I might grow to love them. Um, one of the things I can't get past is um, the editing of the, of the fight sequences. Mm. Now, I love John Glenn. He's my favorite Bond director. I get a feeling that the editing was possibly dictated by Peter Hunt. Um, I, and I love the way that Peter Hunt edited the, the early films, the Terence Young films in particular. But in this film, I find that the editing is a is an acquired taste, and I've never really I've I've not acquired it yet. It's, it's very frantic and quick cut, and there's a couple of moments where I feel it's almost unintentionally comical, and the punches and blows are you know they're they're accompanied by all these exaggerated sounds and like the, you know the cowbells in the shed and the, when he's they're fighting in the corridor and they're hitting against all the filing cabinets, and I know that's the purpose is to have all these exaggerated sounds to make them sound like thunder or whatever, but them combined with the crazy camera zooms. And for me, it just renders them slightly choppy and jarring and a bit dis disorientating. But um, that's, I, I'd, I'd like to say, you know, in a year's time, I'll revisit and think, yeah, yeah, I love them now. I, I, I can see what Hunt's going for. Just doesn't really work for me yet. But all that said, I'm definitely on the side of liking this film more than more than disliking it. If if uh, if I met a fellow Bond fan and they told me that one of their favourites was on Her Majesty's, I would instantly think, yeah, they've got they've got good taste. I, I can I can get along with this Bond fan. Um, this I think the score is possibly one of the finest in the series. I'm a huge John Barry nerd um, to the point where during lockdown, my wife had to ask me to stop listening to the On Her Majesty soundtrack. She says, "Do we have to get this every day?" <laughs> I mean, it's lovely, but every day. Um, there's so many great tracks in it. Uh, the, the the music when Bond is in the helicopter going Journey to Piz Gloria, I think it's, I, I don't want to sound like I'm one of those film critics who uses all those, you know, hyperbolic statements, but I just think that when he's in the helicopter, it's it's euphoric, it's heavenly music. Part of me wishes that music had been played maybe in a romantic scene, so it was more, you know, to do with him and Tracy, because it's not really a big moment. He's in a helicopter with Irma Brunt talking about ice, not ground, ice. It's not really a romantic moment, but you just get this gorgeous music. Uh, I love the music when he's in um, Gumbold's office and he's cracking the safe. Uh, and of course, Barry's instrumental of We Have All the Time in the World just might be the, the loveliest music of, of all time. Uh, and talking about this has made me think about something that you were saying earlier um, about the film being epic and bigger than ever. I, I get a sense from all the research I've done that everyone on this film, I don't think they were terrified that Connery wasn't there, but I get the feeling that everyone was on their A game. I think John Barry said this before in an interview that they felt they would have to step everything up because they'd lost Connery. And when they had Connery, I wonder if he was almost a safety net that they felt, well, if this scene isn't great, you know, he'll carry it. Or if this set isn't brilliant, Connery's charisma will carry through. And without that safety net, I wonder if everyone just upped their game because the cinematography's lovely and the music's great and the direction is really interesting and the, the plot is on point so yeah there's there's so much to love in this film but if someone said to me i can't get past lazenby or i can't get past the editing 
I, I would see where they were coming from. I wrote down, um, I didn't know George Lazenby's Bond had machine gun uh, hands <laughs> because every time he punches, it actually makes a literal like bang noise. So that's a, a strange choice. And we do touch on the editing um, with John Glenn later in the week. And he actually mentions that Peter Hunt had a, a lot of input on the editing. So you saying that is, is completely correct. So that, that makes total sense that you picked up on it. It almost feels like Peter Hunt pushing his editing style to the furthest possible level. Like there was nowhere to go after this because mm. he was out after this movie. He doesn't come back for, you know, Diamonds Are Forever, which doesn't have this sort of rapid style editing. And I don't know, like maybe if you push it any further than this, it would have become unwatchable. Like who knows, right? Yeah, I think there isn't, isn't there a, a quote of some description that Peter Hunt's editing style in the early films was... If you see James Bond leaving a room, you'll see him turn, and the next thing you'll see is the door closing. I don't think you ever actually see that, but it was an exaggerated quote to give you an example of Hunt's editing style. And you're totally bang on the money with this being the furthest example of him pushing that style. And I get that it works for a lot of fans. It's just a little bit much, a little bit much for me. I do like the fight in the the hotel room, though. Uh, that's that's quite good. Where um, is it? Shea Shea, he's he's fighting, and he. He knocks him through the the little gate and then says "Gatecrasher," and then has his little caviar. He's walking <laughs> out of the room. That that's that's quite nice. Um, well, what about you, Shayla? Has it changed? It has changed definitely. I I like it a lot more. It's eleven in my rankings now. It might go up. I I, I have to just sit down with them and maybe see. But uh, there's just there's so much to love, and and now I totally get it. Like the allure of Tracy, I understand. Um, the physicality that George brings, I get it. He's 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 fantastic maybe some of his line deliveries are a little bit off but uh but you know i mean he's not an actor so um but i i, I agree a lot with steven with the editing that was like the main point that i had that i just found the editing kind of bizarre in places like um the fight scene in, Dra in draco's office where there's like the dramatic zoom on the door as bond's going through it i just thought like I, like little weird things like that are so bizarre but then when he's on the other side of the door with the knife that's like the one of the coolest shots like it's it looks it's so perfectly framed and wonderful um so like the speeding up and the cutting is kind of weird but it it definitely has i'm i love it i i'm so happy that i rewatched it and was really paying attention to it because it's there's a lot to love in it well, let me just ask, because you've alluded to it, but it's obviously gone up in your rankings from rewatching it for this. Where did it sit before? And what was your opinion of it then at that point? Like what's what's allowed it to be bumped up? Is it just the performances or what, what's been the key to bumping up your rankings? I think it's my age. Mm. My like I, I'm older now and I can sit down and, and you know, appreciate the films that move a little slower. Um, but I mean, I don't even really find that this film moves that slowly and I find the action scenes are amazing. So, um, but yeah, I would say it, it, it's just because I've like, I've watched it now at 31 as opposed to 12 years old when it would have probably been at the very bottom, because I remember as a kid being like, oh, this is just the one-off that nobody really cares about. So I'll watch it once and then that's it. And I, and I'm, I'm glad that I've like, I no longer feel that way. You can understand as a kid, like why you wouldn't latch onto it as much too just because of Lazenby yeah like he doesn't feel like that sort of strong bond presence you're used to like the movie so often is working through style and action sequences versus putting the focus on bond the way that the other ones do the other ones have that like you are tuning in because you love Roger Moore or because you love Connery versus like this one I feel like you're tuning in just because you love bond but you're willing to 
you know, look at the world of Bond versus just spend a lot of time with the actor. That makes sense. Well, I, I was thinking about um, this sort of phenomena and also like a lot of the other Bond actors uh, are almost maybe not father surrogates, but they're, I don't know, I, I, maybe father surrogates is the correct term. But you want to spend time around them and hang out with them, whereas Lazenby feels like a, a contemporary. Yeah, he feels like he's he's very youthful. He's I think is he the youngest Bond when he starts? Yeah, I think he was thirty years old. So I mean, I, I've got I've got four years on him at this point, but he feels like uh, someone who's of my age. So I'm not looking to him for guidance. He's doing exactly what I would do. So it's a different viewing experience. So I could see maybe some people didn't connect in that sense. Hmm. Um, but Cam, on to you. What's what's changed? I think age is a big factor, and just it, at this point, when I watch Honor Majesties, it hits all the beats that I really love in Bond. It's so luxurious, like it is a movie that just visually is so dynamic. I think there's a reason you know Steven Soderbergh has written a love letter to this uh, to this film that unfortunately you can't find on his blog anymore. It's too bad. I would like to post it in the show notes, but I did read that though. That was great. That was really good reading that. Yeah, like he says he will watch this movie before he goes to shoot one of his own movies just for inspiration because he's so in love with Peter Hunt's style and just how incredible this movie looks. But it's not just that it like looks great or that the editing's awesome. To me, I love diversions in Bond movies. I love those weird moments that you could not get in any other movie. This movie's full of them. This movie has chicken hypnosis. You're not going to see that in another movie. You're going to have all these strange moments strewn throughout here mixed in with I mean, some of the best action in the series, you know, all the ski stuff I'm sure we'll talk about, but just, it's absolutely incredible to watch just the technique of the action on screen and just how big a scale it is, especially in comparison to the movie that would follow it. And also just the style of it. I was really paying attention this time to the way they introduced Bond off the bat, where it's just like close-ups of the cigarette, close-ups of just the elements, kind of the, you know, the um, gadgets of Bond, that sort of thing, the accoutrements that he always has with him. And it's just so much visually going on here. It's Peter Hunt really just probably knowing he doesn't have a Connery level actor, but like, how do I ground all of this in a world where people feel like they are having a full on James Bond experience? And it really feels like the full James Bond experience. And of course, throw on a romantic story that it has some issues for sure, but just the dynamic between him and Tracy is so fantastic and obviously has held up very well just their dynamic it sounds like you've learned to love the chicken flesh to love <laughs> the chicken voice and how it sounds and... scott i need to go now and eat chicken <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's such a weird thing to have the uh, uh allergy to as well like of all the allergies you could have chicken uh... i'm surprised that not that more fans haven't picked up on the fact that as, as you just said there that blofeld says to learn to love their voice. Now let's just stop and think about that for a minute. A chicken's voice. I mean, what sort of chickens was she, she allergic to? Foghorn, <laughs> leghorn? <laughs> yes. That is such a bizarre line that I remember when I watched it during lockdown, I had to pause it and rewind it. I thought, that I didn't hear that. That's He's not saying that. He, he bloody is. But yeah, bizarre. Really bizarre moment. I just thought of this actually. It could it potentially be like Spectre said cuckoo or like Blofeld said cuckoo in Spectre because of the chicken <laughs> voice, maybe? Oh, I don't know. I've never thought <laughs> of that before. Either, just never clicked. thought of that before. Good point. <laughs> yeah, like some sort of bird references wait, they wait, want wait. to work in with them. Do, do you mean it just uh, clucked? 
Oh, well, very good. <laughs> oh, that was good. Oh, that was good. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. What I, what I found that was really strange was, because I think a lot of people gripe about not having Donald Pleasance back as Blofeld, and it really... From what I read, you get the sense that in like 1968, they were like, yeah, that didn't work out. We got to move on. That did not work very well. So let's just get Telly Savalas and ignore that. Whereas now we look at Donald Pleasance as like the most iconic Blofeld possible. Didn't seem to be the case when they were coming off of You Only Live Twice. That being said, though, I only feel like he's iconic in look. Like, I don't, mm. I don't think he's iconic in his performance. I'm not the biggest fan of Blofeld in, in You Only Live Twice. Kill James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, Shayla, I've got a question for you then. Who is your favorite Blofeld? I think it would actually have to be Telly. Like, cause like, yeah, okay. I love the way he holds cigarettes. I love just his whole vibe. Like, <laughs> I don't know. He, cause he's like, he's more, he, he's like an opponent more so for Bond mm. than like, you know, with Donald Pleasance, it kind of, you're not surprised that Bond takes him down in a way. Cause he kind of hides behind everybody where, with Telly's Blofeld, he's like in the action and he's in the bobsled and, you know, like he's he's running after Bond. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would have been very sad to watch a six foot four Lazenby beat the crap out of um, <laughs> Donald Pleasance. It would have been just tragic to watch. But <laughs> Scott, what about you? What about your revisit? For me, I. Um, it's interesting. The film probably sits around about last time I wrote it down. I think I put it as number five mm -hmm. in my rankings. But it might have jumped down a little bit on this revisit, funnily enough. I just, I love everything that's going on in the film, apart from George Lazenby. Right. And it, it, this isn't a controversial statement. I think a lot of people will agree, you know, big Bond fans, little Bond fans. It's, um, it's a fantastic film. And I think Cam said this earlier. They were, well, maybe it was Stephen actually. They were really trying to get everything else to work because they weren't sure about their main actor. So they're firing on all cylinders when it comes to cinematography, when it comes to action sequences, uh, when it comes to the the Bond girl. You, you've got the one he marries, the one whose whose legacy is is held in, all the way to the end of, of Brosnan as, as the only one that got away almost, if you know what I mean. Like the most powerful woman in his life. And... It has all that going for it, and then it just has this performance by a guy who's admittedly not an actor. And I just think that's that's what stops it from being maybe now in my top five. I just think that his performance isn't that good. I think he warms up as the film goes along, but ultimately, I just I struggle to see him as James Bond. I think for me, the reason that it works for me now. And look, there's the whole section where he's dubbed. There's like half an hour or 40 minutes of this movie where he's dubbed. So it's almost like it's tough to even gauge the performance at that point. But there's like a youthful romantic nature to this movie that I think you need sort of a younger Bond here. And I think Lazenby really pulls sections like that off. And also just how athletic he is. When you watch like just, you know, we touched on earlier, you know, the dropping to his knees to hurl the knife there in Draco's office. But even just the way he does the gun barrel, like dropping to the knee and firing at the screen. There's something about just the physicality of this Bond that I really like. And so often people talk about, boy, if Connery had started in this, it would have been the all-time greatest Bond film. But I'm like, I don't know. Like, I look at Connery and You Only Live Twice and I'm like, would he have brought this level of energy? Like, I just don't know. 
funny story I, I in doing research for this episode i read that sean connery actually has said that he would have preferred to do a film like on her majesty's as opposed to you only live twice and mm. i'm actually in the mm. camp of i don't know why people say they don't think that sean could do this movie like like because I, I find that to be such a bizarre um argument because are you like are you saying that he isn't a good actor he can't do emotional stuff like i think connery could have totally pulled off on her majesty's but maybe maybe i'm wrong but i i have faith in sean connery <laughs> Well, I mean, like, Connery's a way better actor than Lazenby. That's not even up for debate. It's more that there's something, like, kind of wide-eyed about the romantic nature of Bond in this movie that I'm just trying to picture a Connery coming off of, like, you know, four or five other Bond films and buying into that as much. Whereas, like, I kind of buy the puppy dog eyes that Lazenby has in this movie more so than I would kind of a cynical Connery take. Yeah, no, that's fair. Like, maybe if Honor Majesties came sooner... It would have been mm -hmm. like a Sean one. It would have been better. I, I no, I, I would, I would bite back against that. I think it would almost make the marriage work better if it was Sean, because he is, he's meant to be surprised that he's fallen in love, right? And and if you have this jaded man after five films of loving and losing, you think of like, um, is, it, is it Kissy in You Only Live Twice who he kind of marries? Uh, yeah, yeah, was it? Yeah, it's Kissy and. And like that whole thing, and he's he's loved and lost a lot of people, and this is the first one who's actually really loved and actually properly lost. And so you actually could, I think, buy the the surprise of everyone around him that he got married. Whereas this one, it's a new guy, and it's weird that Money Penny is surprised that he's married. <laughs> That's a good point, though. I think I agree with that. And I I I I think Sean could have done it. Agreed. I think the key would have been his um, his enthusiasm level because it, it's kind of widely agreed, and I'm not saying I feel this way, but it's it's widely agreed that he looks slightly bored in some scenes in You Only Live Twice, and it's, it is widely known that he wanted to quit the role by that point. He'd had enough. I think had Peter Hunt or somebody convinced him, you, you know, we're going to make a different kind of movie here, and I think if they could have got him up for it, I think it could have been amazing. Uh, but that's the key thing. Had they have got him interested in exactly what Scott was saying there, I think it would have had a, just a little bit more punch if this guy who had been the playboy and we'd seen him with all these women and never fallen in love, if he had fallen in love for the first time, it might have had that extra bit of punch. But you know what? We'll, we'll never know. We'll, we'll never know. It's, it's, we've got the movie we've got. And I think that George George does pretty well for, for a non-actor. Um, when I, When I was younger, I could not really... I couldn't enjoy him as Bond. And to me, I, I, I kind of agree with what Scott was saying earlier, that he is one of the things for me that holds this movie back from, from greatness. But I, I think he's pretty solid. Um, but I would also argue that his performance alternates between scenes. So I think he's really strong, or he's strongest in the scenes where he doesn't need to speak. You know, when he enters the casino and he just strides through from one side to the other, or when he's in Gumbold's office and he's, there's no dialogue required because he was a really good mover. He was really good at just walking around. He had that physicality. And for someone to have the balls as a non-actor to, to want to replace Sean Connery in the most iconic film role of all time, that just sort of shows you what sort of confidence the guy had. And that's an element that a lot of fans would say is, is completely integral to play Bond, that you need that confidence. And he radiates confidence throughout this whole film. Sheila said earlier on that um, she feels that a lot of his line readings were, was it flat, you said, or something yeah, like, like that? Just, yeah, like just, yeah. Yeah, 
that's I feel exactly the same way. There's there's a lot of his line delivery in so many of the scenes just feels off. There's some maybe some of them are too eager, some of them are too flat. And I've got another theory, and you guys can tell me if you agree with this or not. I I wonder if Peter Hunt decided to dub so much of him with with um, George Baker because Lazenby was just not experienced at dubbing and his initial line readings were just off. So it was maybe easier to spend 20, 25 minutes of the movie using an experienced actor like George Baker, who could probably just come in and do the line dubbings like that. Whereas with Lazenby, he would have had to work a lot harder. I wonder also if it's, if you look at that whole segment where he's dubbed, a lot of it is kind of comedic. And I wonder if they felt like he was a little flat to be delivering these sort because comedy's hard. And you hear dramatic actors say that all the time. And a lot of this, these kind of, you know, these double entendres he's delivering when he's talking about genealogy to this group of women. And it's kind of like, almost like light comedy, the scenes he has, you know, going from room to room. And it's like, I wonder if they just found that maybe he was a little too just wooden in those scenes. Whereas you have, you know, George mm -hmm. Baker kind of getting a lot of personality off all of those lines, no matter how eye-rolling they are. Uh, well, I think he was quite wooden in those scenes, but that's a whole other story. Slight <laughs> 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 yeah, stiffness coming on. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really piling up. Um, well, I, I, it's interesting because we've spent a lot of this episode so far talking about, like, what George might have done wrong and what we would have done without George. Mm -hmm. So I think I'll put a pin in it. And I, what I want to move us over to is just things that we liked and, 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 and sort of celebrate some of the good stuff in the film. So uh, I'm going to throw it to uh, Stephen first. Something you liked about this film and, and tell us about it. Uh, okay, so one of my all-time favourite Bond scenes and moments is um, at the ice rink. I love the fact that Bond is looking scared and alone when he's sitting there. He looks like he's mm. out of ideas. It's it's almost a first. He he's got no gadget to save him. He's got no out. He's got no escape. He's he's actually. I love how he's pulling his collar around his face, like he's almost trying to hide. Um, and it's just it's edited very well with skaters sort of whizzing past and the vocals of that song that Sheila was singing earlier on, <laughs> and how Christmas trees are grown. He needs love just just as and then Tracy arrives at just the, the perfect moment. And I love the way we see her ski first and then the camera pans up to her. It it's it's a slightly odd scene if you think about it, because Lazenby's Bond is is pretty invincible in the fight scenes. You know, whenever he's fighting someone, he's like a superhero punching them with that uppercut like Ryu from Street Fighter 2. Uh, but I think I think Lazenby does sell the fear of that scene and my theory and that there's no way to prove this is right or wrong, but my theory is that that's the moment when his bond fell in love with Tracy, when she showed up. Right. Just when he needed her. Well, it's like you have the angels of death, you know, Blofeld's, you know, hypnotized women he's sending out. And that's sort of like the angel to say bond there showing up in that really kind of like heavenly moment. So it makes a lot of sense. And I've always been a big fan of the bear popping up and taking Bond's photo and then screaming with laughter. <laughs> and I did ask John Glenn about that moment, so you'll have to see if I get a good answer to uh, my investigation into this bear. But um, yeah, like that whole sequence is just, it's almost done like a horror film at parts where you just have that heightened level of paranoia. It feels almost like something like Rosemary's Baby or something. And I've always really loved it. Yeah, it's, it's great. Well, 
What, what about you, Shayla? Something, uh, something you liked about the film? Well, the the one thing that I noticed that I that like I took away the most watching it this time was I just liked I I loved all the throwbacks that there was. So like I I love that like in the title sequence, it's a throwback to all of the other missions so that you know you're watching a Bond film, even though Bond doesn't look like Connery anymore. You're in a Bond film, and I love when he's going through his desk and he has the rebreather and he has and you can hear underneath the mango tree. Um, so I actually like that. Actually, might be my favorite thing just because I think that's such a cool thing that they. You know, they they were they wanted to show the continuity and they wanted you to know you were watching a Bond film and that it was connected to the Sean one. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it kind of uh, puts down the codename theory as much as it can. Exactly. Um, yeah. Even though he says it never happened to the other fella. That That's true. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very interesting that you uh, had that as a highlight, Shayla. I actually had that as a, a dislike. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, I just... I. I don't know if I like the sort of fourth wall meta commentary in the film. Like I, I know like Money Penny says, "Oh, same old James," and so there's there's comments that is obviously meant to say like there is a a through thread here. It's the same guy. Obviously, you get as you say like the all the stuff in the drawer. You get the knife from Doctor No, etc. But like seeing scenes of the other Blofeld. Oh yeah. In the title crawl and stuff, it, it, it just reminds you of of the good you had before. Like I would, I, I'm not a big fan of um, continuity in Bond. Right. I'll just, I'll just say it. I, I like, I would almost rather them all be separate entities, but I understand that's not necessarily the case. Um, and so like them referencing all these films and actually showing clips from them, I think really for me just detracts from trying to initiate you into a new Bond. That's fair. Uh, what do you think about that, Stephen? Um, I would have loved to have been sitting there in 1969 watching this film for the first time and then George Lazenby turns to the screen and addresses <laughs> the audience. I can imagine that would have went down pretty oddly. Uh, in general, I think it's it's an odd approach because you have so many moments in this film where they're trying to reassure you that this is the same James Bond, but then he literally turns to the screen and talks about the other fella. It's It's... It's it's very it's very inconsistent. Um, I don't really know what what else they could have done back then because following following Connery, who at the time they had on the posters is Sean Connery is Bond. They had they had pretty much marked out their stable back then, but that this one actor was was him. So I think it's the safe approach was to keep, keep trying to remind you that this is this is the same guy. Um, the thing with watching Bond as a kid so much and watching it as an adult so much is that I, I don't know how I feel about the him turning to the camera and saying this never happened to the other fella. I think if I watched that now for the first time, I would hate it. I would hate it with a passion, but I don't mind it so much now because I grew up with it and I've seen it and I know it and it's I'm familiar with it and it's become it's become a sort of comedy moment among Bond fans and he's George is now referred to as the other fella, which is bizarre in itself because he's not the other fella. Connery is the other hmm. fella. Mm. in the film um but laz is now known as the other fella um so i i don't really hate it but i I don't like the idea of it it's it's a really bold choice i can imagine there being some big discussions in the creative team back then and say right how are we going to address the fact that he's not connery let's get him to turn to the camera and actually (laughs) say that to 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 the to the audience um I can imagine there have been a few heated arguments and debates about that but um, it's just it's so weird they just don't seem to know 
what they want with it. Because at the mo- at the beginning, as Cam was saying, he was paying attention to it when he was watching the film. They're sort of trying to hide that it's Lazenby. They're just giving you hints of a well chiseled man in a in a in a suit. You get little glances in the the rearview mirror and such, and then you get that reveal when he's fighting the guys on the beach. Slowly, they're almost hiding the fact that it's it's Lazenby. And then he does the whole wink at the camera, and then you get all the references in the title cards, and then all the the stuff in the drawers. And also, like, there's a there's a guy sweeping in the background later on who's whistling the gold finger theme. Yeah. <laughs> this film doesn't know whether it wants to have its cake and eat it sort of thing. You know, like it doesn't know what it wants to be. It's also like the first, I think, James Bond film to be really self-referential. Um, you have little bits and pieces but nothing like this where they're really suddenly like celebrating their own history until no time to die (laughs) oh (laughs) and die another day don't forget die another day well that was for an anniversary though so i mean (laughs) yeah i'm i've got some notes to tackle uh no time to die in a bit actually i'm looking forward to discussing that but yeah Stephen, go ahead yeah looking back on this film something struck me that i've never really considered before is that this this was such a different film at the time in the way that it was it was the first Bond film to take things down a notch and go back to reality. Now, nowadays, we just take it as standard that every couple of years, Bond will get bigger and sillier and more fantastical, and then there'll be the dark, hard-edged mm. one. We, we just accept that now. We know that's the way that things go. You'll, you, you know, you'll get a... You'll go from a light to dark. You'll go from a fantastical escapist romp to grounded hardest thrillers, from Moonraker to For Your Eyes Only. We know that's what happens. But back then, it must have been a bit... It must have, that must have been a debate too. In that, I think it was Peter Hunt that said he wanted to bring things back to reality and be a bit more grounded. But I imagine that must have been a bit of a risk because if you look at the trajectory from Doctor No to You Only Live Twice, the films just get gradually bigger and more fantastical with each entry. So, I, I mean, I don't know if there was anywhere they could have went after You Only Live Twice, but it, it is pretty bold, and it's also quite a different film to all the other films in the series. It's something of an outlier, not just because of George, because the first act, if you stop and look at it, is almost like this romantic melodrama at times. It has a falling in love montage. The film ends on a real downer, and at the time, it did quite a few things that Bond films weren't supposed to do, you know, as Bond falling in love, quitting the service, getting married. So it was it was a real risky film. I can see why back then fans maybe balked at it a bit or... I can imagine a lot of fans getting whiplash after You Only Live Twice, which is so bondy and so formulaic. To go from one to the other would have been a bit, maybe a bit too, maybe it was too much too soon. But it's a real interesting film to look at from a historical point of view in Bond. And I wonder if it was, I wonder if it's a bit of, it's become a trendsetter now, but were fans ready for it back then? I suspect they weren't. I think that's a really good point. I think it's much like the the Dalton era. People weren't ready for the 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 full on action Bond that, that, that now we all seem to well mostly seem to love with with Daniel Craig. So I think that's a very good point. Also, were they ready to take James Bond seriously? Because you know, like the ending of this movie doesn't work unless you can actually invest yourself in the emotional journey of the character, and that's not something they asked you to do in you know Goldfinger. Yeah. Well. I think we've been quite critical of, of George's acting in this film. Well, we, we haven't been too harsh, but Not yet. I think he really nails that final scene. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the scene in the car, I think he mm-hmm. really, really gets that. I, I did, I'm did. i sure I read somewhere that Hunt and him workshopped that scene because 
they knew it was a big one. It was the one they had to sell. And Lazenby does a fantastic job in that scene of cradling her. And, you know, it's quite all right. It's quite all right, really. It's so sad. And one of the things about this film that I think is just slightly off for me is I don't like the use of the Bond theme after the final credits. It just feels yeah. wrong to me. You've just seen the love of his life get shot in the head and they want to suddenly bring you back. You can tell why they did mm. it. Surely somebody said, well, we need, we need, we want the audience walking out. We need something uplifting. That is the film that should have ended with Louis Armstrong. Right. Yeah. We have all the time in the world. That's the film that, because it's this romantic, lovely song and it would have just followed on perfectly from her death. But, um, is is her death one of the greatest scenes in the in the series? I I, I think it's got to be, but controversially for me, it's not the most affecting moment in the film. Oh, well, hang on then. Let's try and figure it out before we let you give it away. Yeah, let's try to guess it. Like, there's nice moments I can think of. I always think of Monty Penny crying at the wedding. That one always is that it? Oh. Babu, <laughs> oh, he nailed it. I just love the the exchange they have. It's so subtle, and there's no words. And they just give each other that little wave and he throws the hat, which is just perfect. You know, after all the years of Connery tossing the hat in the office, throws the hat to her and she just looks heartbroken. That moment really, this, this is my favorite Moneypenny movie with, with the, the little hat toss at the wedding and the moment in the office because Lois Maxwell is brilliant in that scene. She sells it from a character point of view as well. She knows that he's being reckless and impetuous. She knows he doesn't really want to quit and she saves him from himself. Mm-hmm. And that lovely moment with the intercom, you know, what would I do without you? And then Bernard Lee turns into the sleaziest man in the world for one second. What would I do without you, Money Penny? Just... I I agree yeah, though. That was that. that's one of my notes. How incredible Money Penny is in this. Um, she like she might be my well actually she might be my favorite part. Maybe maybe it's not all of the throwbacks to the to the Sean Connery films. It's just Lois Maxwell. Like I just think she's so like her performance is like perfect. It's a real shame when you watch this movie that they didn't give her more heavy lifting to do in future movies because this was really proof positive she could do it. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, obviously we live in an era now where Monty Penny gets a lot to do in these more recent Bond films. Maybe not as much as people would like, but they still give her much more to do than like what Lois Maxwell would get. And you look at a movie like this and it's like you only gain when you give her more to do because clearly she can pull this stuff off. Well, Cam, what about you? What's a, what's an up? What's a like for you? Um, I think we just should talk about Tracy here. You know, Diana Riggs' performance in yep. this. I really think this is a fantastic character and makes up for, like, you know, the previous, you know, couple Conneries. You had, like, decent, you know, Bond-leading ladies, but they weren't necessarily up to kind of matching wits with him. I think what I really like about Tracy is that not only could she match wits with Bond incredibly well... But they feel like a believable couple. But I like, too, the relationship she has with her father. And that she has his number, like, consistently throughout the movie. It's not... There's issues there, obviously, when, you know, her father's punching her out at the end. Hasn't aged great, guys. But um, throughout, her father has kind of this weird... I mean, the guy's, you know, a criminal underworld dude. But, like, he has this kind of backwards thinking towards how to treat her and deal with her but it's very clear that tracy knows how to manipulate him and is just as smart if not smarter than her father and plays that up and i like the way she sees all the angles you know that draco's making this deal with bond i'll give you information on blofeld if you you know seduce my daughter and like she walks up and is like yeah i know exactly what you're doing just give him the information so this character is just so dynamic and 
it'll be interesting, Scott, as we, you know, talk about Tracy now and we will be rolling around in a couple of months to talk about the, um, you know, the women in Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, what a what a pivot that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I am plenty. Um, Goshua. Um, I, Tracy, I... I don't think they've ever had a a better Bond girl since. Uh, Vesper's pretty. I know people will say Vesper. Yeah. I know people will say Vesper. I know people might say Natalia. They might say a couple more. But I think I don't think anyone's ever beaten Diana Rigg. I'll, I'll go down it, and and this is like why this film is still in my top ten. It's a lot of it's on Diana Rigg's shoulders. Even that weird start where she's trying to drown herself in the ocean. And only on this watch did I realize it was because she was having like a mental breakdown because of her ex-husband or something like that. I didn't really realize why she was trying to kill herself. It's a bit strange, not really well explained. But she leaves such a lasting impact. And like there's a there's a genuine sense of joy when she marries Bond. And then there's a genuine sense of loss. Anyone watching this film when she gets shot. And and you feel the same loss when Vesper dies in Casino Royale. I think just to a slightly lesser degree, at least for me. I agree with that. I Vesper has never actually been that highly ranked for me. I don't know what it is about her. Um, I'm, I'm loving her more and more as I watch it more, I guess. But I definitely agree that Tracy is probably the best Bond girl. And I never would have thought I'd say, would have said that. But now since watching it over again, she's just incredible. And I love that she saves Bond. Like she's doing the driving in the car, like in in the snow and stuff. Like she's amazing. Yeah, and she shows up in a red convertible at the start of the movie in a scene that feels somewhat similar to Goldeneye with the way they introduce Zenya. I was actually gonna say I would really love someone to put ladies first over top of the uh, car stuff in the beginning of Our Majesties, <laughs> just to see. <laughs> I'm sure someone has, and I just haven't seen it. But yeah, the one bummer to me with the relationship here is like when Bond is at that, you know. Pitts, um, you know, the Blofeld compound there on the, on the, um, you know, the Alps that he's like just hopping room to room, like seducing these women randomly. If he had to like do it to make the mission happen and you could have a like character moment where he realizes that he has to do this, maybe then I would feel differently, but it's just like this, like almost like romantic comedy, just silliness of Bond, just like sneaking out of his room and into these women's, you know, suites. It's just, Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't, and using the same line. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny, <laughs> but it doesn't merge well with the romance that hangs over this movie. Hey, there's there's no ring on the finger. <laughs> <laughs> she ain't locked that down, my friend. It's all to play for. Yeah, maybe she's up to some adventures herself, so who knows? Yeah, I, I can believe that uh, Diana Rigg is a woman who knows what she wants. Mm, definitely. Um, I, I want to talk about Tracy, but you just give me a moment to talk about one of my weirdest, funny moments of the film, which is just, I mean, Sir Hilary Bray as a character. But the whole, like, jumping around from bedroom to bedroom, reciting the lines to each girl, and, like, the whole, they thought he was gay and then he's bisexual. I just think that's a really fascinating little little tidbit to the film, like... I don't. I don't usually like women, but I'll make an exception for you. And you're so wonderful in the firelight. <laughs> and I just, what a what a strange choice. And I don't know why being intelligent and talking about uh, you know golden balls on a on a crest makes you sound uh, homosexual to these women. But 
I don't know where they got the vibe that he was gay from. I never really picked up on that. Maybe more like a stuffy academic. Yeah, I know. It's weird, right? Yeah. I also don't get the moment where he like lifts up his kilt or whatever, and she says, it's true. I was like, wait, what has he said that would imply me to think of something that's true? Wait, wait, wait. You don't know what that means? I'll explain that. What does it mean? That he's a true Scotsman. Yeah. Oh, like he didn't wear underwear? Yeah, that's it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's that's the whole. That was my intro line. <laughs> um, okay, that was that's it. Like he wasn't wearing underwear. I assume that's what they meant anyway. Unless he was talking about the golden balls still. That's where I got confused because he was talking about having four golden balls, and I'm like, I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Hilly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but back to 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 Tracy. I think we should give her her proper time. Um. Has I mean, anyone else got anything to add about Tracy? Yeah, I I like how she's a character, and when I see a character, I think you read so often about um, upcoming films where they're going to have the strong female character and they're going to have a badass female character, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think a lot of times that's that's talk. Mm. You you get the talk, but they don't actually deliver on it. Whereas Tracy is an actual fully rounded character. She's not just a competent ass kicker. I mean, she is, but I like that there's more to her than that. You know, she's she's flawed and she's a bit messed up and she's bratty and she's independent, but she's codependent. She's stubborn, but she's loyal. Um, she, she's got all these different shades to her and it just makes her fascinating. And I've grown to like Spectre over the last few years, but I've never really bought the relationship between Madeline and Bond in that film. I, I, I don't buy that he would fall in love with her in that film or even vice versa. But with Tracy in this film, I completely 100% believe that Bond would fall in love with her in the, in the way that he does and the way that it progresses throughout the movie. I mean, at first he's attracted to her and he maybe just sees her as another conquest, another notch on his bedpost. But as they, as they get to know each other and, you know, he, he sees, oh, she can drive a car really fast. Oh, she's a brilliant skier. Oh, she's actually quite loyal. Oh, she's, she's here for me when I need her. Oh, I can rely on her. All these things stack up throughout the film. And and when Bond is falling in love with her, you, as a viewer, kind of are too in a way. Mm. I just think she's she. It just shows you don't need a silly name for a Bond girl. You don't need her to come out with these double entendres. You need something like Tracy, who's a proper character. I mean, I mean, you can't have it every film, of course. You can't have Bond falling in love every film and having his wife killed every film because it wouldn't have the same impact. Um, but she's. If you have to list the, the five best things about this film, I think most people would have her as one of the strong points, Absolutely. surely. Um, yeah. I mean, Shayla, you said that she's probably your top Bond girl now looking after revisiting this film. But I, I suppose I'm curious what you look for. You know, you're the only woman in the room. What is it you're looking for to make a successful Bond girl? What what sort of characteristics, what, uh, what, you know, what in the script are you looking for? What, what do you gravitate towards? I suppose I, I like it when they can hold their own. Like, I really like Natalia as well, and I love Waylin. Um, but I, I I actually, I've asked myself this question, and I and I do kind of find it hard to answer because on the flip side, I also love Solitaire and, like, some of the other Bond girls that are maybe not as, like, badass or Bond's equal. Um, but I guess I kind of lean more towards just... Um, being able to hold their own. I, I like when they have their own story where like Tracy 
has her own story you know she's going through losing her husband who just killed himself and 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 like she you know she meets bond and then they fall in love and everything and and she has her own identity i guess outside of bond and that i guess i like that about natalia as well she has her own separate mission but i'm kind of all over the map with bond girls um yeah i i think we could sit here all day and and just pile on the the good credits and and, and the compliments towards diana rig and i think she did a fantastic job just in the performance let alone just what was written for i think she she brought a lot of gravitas to the role and i think lifted the material definitely but um, i suppose in terms of the only like left i haven't really chucked one on uh i just want to have a shout out to because i was going to mention the soundtrack but Stephen mentioned that earlier and it is a fantastic fantastic soundtrack the other thing was just the cinematography in this film yeah it's visually visually a feast and another one of those elements i think they had to really up their game just to sort of maybe balance off the lazenby of it all I mean, there's a there's a scene where they're the final assault on Peace Glory, where they're flying in with the helicopters, and there's like a sunrise in the background. And, I mean, that is that's absolutely gorgeous. And watching it on Blu-ray now, I hope to see a 4K transfer of this film at some point. And I, I imagine it even looks even more stunning. It's just an exquisite and a gorgeous-looking film. I always love the shot of all the skiers going over the top of the hill. That one always looks incredible near the end when it's Blofeld leading the Spectre goons. And just, I mean, kind of jumping off of that visually, like the action in this movie often looks absolutely phenomenal, whether it's the bobsled chase or that assault on Pitt's Gloria there at the end, which obviously Christopher Nolan loved a lot when you watch Inception and see that he was clearly trying to evoke that sequence. Like this is a movie that's wall-to-wall action we've seen action in every bond movie before this but it feels like we're elevating what we can do and just the visual style the cinematography of it really just draws so much out of it i mean that nighttime ski chase as well is incredible well i think then what we'll do is when we throw out to dislikes in the group um any any sort of quibbles people might have uh let's go with steven first what have you got in terms of a dislike or a quibble about the film you haven't brought up already uh, yeah, a couple of quibbles. Um, I, I find the whole brainwashing plot is ridiculous. <laughs> Using attractive allergy sufferers to unleash a bioweapon, uh, it just it just feels like it belongs. Maybe ridiculous is the wrong word. Maybe it just it's it belongs in a different film. Uh, when you listen to Peter Hunt and everyone talk about this film, they always see how they wanted to bring things back down to earth and be a bit more grounded. And the film does that. And it's got this lovely love story, and they they kind of got rid of the gadgets a bit. Um, but, so for me, that that aspect of the film just doesn't hang with all the other stuff. Um, another thing, when I was young, I was just as pedantic as I am now. Uh, I could never, ever watch the Incredible Hulk cartoon and figure out how he got his shirt back when he turned back into a human. That always <laughs> bothered me. I just thought, how does his shirt go back? Mom, that does not make sense. Um, so yeah, when I, was, when I was young, I could not understand for the life of me how Blofeld didn't recognize Bond. Uh-huh. I would say to my mom and dad over and over, they just met in the previous film. And my dad would just try and placate me and say, well, he's got glasses on, he's got a pipe. And I'm like, dad, this Blofeld would know. I mean, we are, as, as adults and Bond nerds now, we know, we know the answer is that they wanted to adapt on Her Majesty's and they just thought, okay, it's the only way we can do it. Uh, so that, that niggles me a little bit, but not too much. One of the things that, bothers me is something i never hear mentioned about this film why does bond just leave blofeld hanging by a branch at, at the end of the film 
the previous scenes have shown that Bond will chase him anywhere. You know, at the start of the film, he resigns because he's not being allowed to pursue Blofeld anywhere. And then he'll get in a bobsleigh and chase him down this bobsleigh track. But then Blofeld gets stuck in a branch and Bond just pisses off to have a glass of brandy with a big dog. Yeah, he makes like a, a quip about it the same way he does like the yeah. guy who falls into the grinder thing. You know, it's like, I'm sorry. Like, he had lots of guts. Yeah, it's like if this was like someone he was desperate to track down, he would want a confirmed kill just as a professional. Like he's an assassin for, you know, working for the government. You want to be able to confirm that like their greatest adversary is dead. Yeah. So part of me when Tracy gets shot, I'm thinking, well, Bond, you know, you should have finished off what you started there, mate, by, by your own fault. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's just it's just an odd moment. I'd never noticed it before. And when I watched it a few months ago, I thought, you know what? He just leaves Blofeld there. That's weird. Why doesn't he go back for him? Because he could have. It's surely just a little walk up a hill to find him. Odd moment. I do like the he's branched off quip. I thought that was funny. <laughs> it's a pretty good one. Pretty good one. Yeah. And I just wanted to say just about the hypnosis. It feels very 60s camp, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Like everything mm -hmm. there. And the movie almost doesn't care about it because you get to then this kind of hand wave. Oh, don't worry. We've, we've stopped that. Don't worry. It's fine. <laughs> like they don't even check in with any of those women. The shot of Irma Bunt's face when Bond looks up and she's above him in bed is nightmare <laughs> fuel. No matter how many times uh -huh. I see that. It's like that horrible moment in, you know, in the Fellowship of the Rings when Bilbo goes to touch the ring and his face turns black for a moment. It's just one of those moments that I could have seen the film a hundred times and I jump out of my skin every time. Oh, I'm, I'm going to put those two uh, pictures together now on Twitter and uh, put it up just for you, <laughs> just to haunt you with it. <laughs> I mean, she is not a picture and she does not look twice as lovely. <laughs> I've, I've said that, I've said that, but I did watch the documentary about this uh, inside on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and she was a very attractive young woman. I was very surprised. Yeah, and she was really close with the girls, too. Like, they all were very, very close, and they were all, like, knitting together and what have you, yeah. Something else about Bond fandom that I find weird is it's just generally accepted that, uh, that Tracy was killed by Blofeld, and no, she wasn't. Blofeld was driving the car. Blofeld was an accessory. It was Bunt that killed her. I, I did like the fact that he was in a neck brace, though. I, I guess a bonus point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he has to like kind of awkwardly Abbott turn Marion. to the side to look. <laughs> well, like, here's a question. Is Irma Bunt um, Bond's greatest adversary? Like, if anyone... I mean, she got away. She committed, like, the worst thing humanly possible against him, and she got away with it. It's a good point. It, it's, it's entirely possible. She's a crack shot as well. That's a moving car. She managed to make that headshot, so fair play to her. Yeah, I think they were planning to work in Irma Bunt in an earlier draft of Spectre and then cut her because it just the movie was already too busy. But I would love to see that character back in some way. She has a real air of menace in this film. Like when, whenever she appears, you, you believe she's Blofeld's number two. Mm -hmm. You believe that he trusts her, that she gets stuff done. I, I love how matronly she is with all the girls. You know, the fun just stops when she when she turns up. You're having steak and you're going to listen to his boring stories about plaques that's it that's what your dinner is ladies deal with it i always had Irma down as like a lesser rosa kleb i feel like you could completely see it that way and i would totally understand i think they give her enough that i'm able to differentiate between the two but it's kind of like uh all too often you know they go to the, like the blonde henchman dude who mm. works for specter as well or like the villain 
And I feel like that's a little bit of the same case here. It's just that to me, she has enough personality to be a, to feel a little different. Wait, hang on. Can we name the blonde henchman? So we have uh, not just Spectre, but in Bond, we have Stamper. Stamper. Yeah. Uh, you got the Necros in Necros. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you got Hans. Red Grant. Hans, Ultimate. and you only live twice. Hans. Yep. And the one that I can never remember oh, the name of what about is Red the one. Grant? He's got the blonde hair. Yeah, Red, Red Grant. Grant. It's the one in For Your Eyes Only whose name I always forget. Kriegler, isn't it? Oh, yeah. boom! Kriegler. Sure. <laughs> I'm go. taking. I'm taking your word for it. I believe <laughs> that you are accurate. <laughs> the five blonde henchmen of the apocalypse. Perfect. <laughs> um, Shayla, what's a dislike for you? I think the main dislike for me was same as Steven, which would be like the brainwashing. Um, it's a little bit less believable. But that being said, I definitely close my eyes during Ruby's therapy just to see if I'll end up loving chickens by the end of it. Hasn't happened yet, but you never know. So I don't know, maybe Blofeld needs to go back to work on his uh, therapy because it doesn't work on me. But uh, that would be the biggest one, I guess, would be the brainwashing. What, what would you go to Blofeld to uh, have cured? Oh, my goodness. Mm. perhaps my addiction to chocolate maybe we'll just lessen it a little bit you know like i don't need to love it this much well for out to the rest of you guys Stephen, what would you go to get cured at blofeld's uh peace glory academy that is a, that is an excellent question uh, maybe my addiction to bond so i could get more stuff done <laughs> and not watch for your eyes only four times what, a what month? do you mean you're, 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 it's oh. it's what quarter to midnight here in the uk and you're up talking about bond that's perfectly normal right yeah no that's good uh, maybe my addiction to pasta yeah <laughs> there's one for you these are all food based so far cam what have you got i'm trying to think i'm actually really good in that i'm not really addicted to anything in my life but oh here we go humble brag i know it's true it's true but uh i think the one thing i really do battle against is an addiction to coke zero that is the one thing that i you love about. coke zero i do i really do and i don't drink at all and so it's like my only joy is Coke Zero. So it's like, please don't take it away from me. <laughs> he means that literally. That is his only joy in life. That's yeah. all he has left. <laughs> Actually, I've rethought my answer. Can I give you a, can I give you a separate, separate answer? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, go on. Go I, on. Would, <laughs> I would potentially, and I have to think about this, but I would potentially have all the knowledge of all the Bond films removed so I could watch them again for the first time. Ooh. That's a good one. Now, the reason I say that Especially is... Especially Casino Royale 67. I am... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, when I was talking earlier about how when I was younger, I watched them so many times that they lost meaning. Um, I did this weird thing when I was a student. I used to just use Bond quotes just all through life in inappropriate scenarios. They would just pop out. I wouldn't really know they were coming. And I'll, I'll give you one a quick example. So um, I had a sort of slight asthma attack one day. And I had to get a, a taxi to the chemist to get an inhaler. And as the door was opening, the, the taxi driver asked me where I wanted to go. And I said, oh, the nearest pharmacy, please. Ooh. And did that turned into Roger from the man with the golden gun for a second. And part of my brain just said to me, not now. You're almost having an asthma attack. There is no time for this nonsense. You're literally dying, man. We can stop now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also the taxi driver didn't get it. He just looked at me like... What was that? <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd maybe, I'd maybe remove that stuff because it's yeah. I think I think for me just to finish it off, I would probably take away my uh, crippling need to be validated by everyone. 
Um, mm. I, I clearly need everyone's affection. That's why I have a podcast. So, yeah, you'll always get everyone's affection when you when you review movies on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people love me. Yeah, <laughs> there's already one uh, what fatwa out against me. So, uh, yeah. yeah, and we recently had we recently had a, a verbal podcast rebuttal against this cam. So we must be doing quite well. That's right. Can't complain. Hmm. Um. Okay. Cam, a dislike slash quibble. We've touched on the things that kind of bother me. You know, like the stuff with him kind of flirting with the women when the Tracy relationship is so strong in the movie. But um, the one scene that every time I watch it, it's kind of like I mentally check out is the escape from like the engine room where he has to, you know, crawl across the cables while the cable car is coming after him. But all the lead up to that... I always find a little bit slow. Like, I'm like, just get to the ski sequence. That's where the excitement is. I think that's fair enough. Uh, it's as close as we're going to get to where where Eagles Dare in the film. Yeah. Um, it, it That that bit does kind of bog for me. I also find the stuff at the race course maybe a bit slow and the little romance montage they have. Oh, you see, well, I don't know. Like, once you, like, pipe in the music, I'm just sign me up. I'm good to go. That's that's fair. Um, the only thing I had left that hadn't been mentioned already was, and and this is just a, it being a product of its time. It's not really a, a big deal. Um, it's just sort of the weird way that Draco talks about the mental illness side of things at the start. Yeah. Very dismissive of the whole thing and how she really just needs a man to calm her down and like F you for a start. Um, yeah, but I I understand this was made in the sixties, so I can compartmentalize my issue with it. But you know, that's very much an old guard sort of mentality. But then I think Lazenby signifies a sort of new emotional side of Bond that's coming through, whereas Draco is meant to be this. Uh, well, I said the old guard, but that that sort of encapsulation of what came before, and Lazenby is meant to be this revitalized way because he's he treats uh, Teresa, he treats Tracy very well, apart from. A couple of bits and bobs. But uh, yeah, I think he's a lot nicer to women than Draco is. So you're meant to draw that distinction. Yeah, I'd actually forgotten how much um, Bond rebuffs suggestions of Draco's. Like, I, my memory was more that they were somewhat on the same page. But pretty much everything Draco suggests, Bond is not really along with. Like, he doesn't agree to. And that I actually appreciated walking out of the movie. You know, was like, huh. That actually made me think a little higher of the Lazenby Bond, because there are problematic elements of, you know, Bond in the 60s. I mean, shocker of all shockers. But um, that part didn't grate on me the way I thought it might. No. Um, well, OK, before we go to the uh, naughty or nice list at the end here, I guess we'll just throw out to like any quick notes or questions. I have one question. Well, I actually have two questions, but I'll, I'll throw the first one out and I'll come back with the other one later. We spoke about what if Sean was in this film? The question I had, and we don't have to dig into it too much, but would you rather have had Sean or Roger in this film instead of Lazenby, if you had to pick? Ooh. Who would you rather have seen in the role? Between uh, those two? Between those two, yeah. We won't include Dalton because he was way too young at that point. Yeah. Uh, Shayla? Wow. Um both <laughs> i would like to see both um but if i had to choose just one i think it would be really cool to see roger actually 
Um, especially where, you know, like if Sean was like super over it and didn't want to continue with Bond anymore and or, or like wouldn't have given his all to the the emotional depth that the story needed, I think it'd be cool to see Roger. I think Roger could pull off the delicate stuff, especially the end scene with, with Tracy. Yeah, totally. He also, if you're going to have him doing those scenes um, at the allergy clinic with these various women, like Roger would have pulled that off seamlessly, like the light comedy aspects. Yeah, totally. Steven? Yeah, um, if, if it was a, if it was a, if we had a motivated Connery, that, that would be my choice. But now that you guys have mentioned Roger and I'm, I'm picturing him as Sir Hilary Bray and I can't picture anything else. <laughs> Just him with the, the pipe alone would have been worth an extra star rating. Um, <laughs> oh. See, mm. see, my view on Roger is that I think, I think he's, he's good enough in, in all the films he's in, all the Bond films. I think he's, he's watchable and entertaining from the, from the start. My personal thing with Roger is I think he grows into the role and, and sort of finds his feet a little bit. And the first couple, he's maybe caught between Sean and trying out some things. And then I really like his performances when he's when he's a little bit older. But so thinking of him as a young Bond in, in this film, it, it, it's tough because he's known as the funny Bond and the humorous Bond, and he is. And he can do the light comedy like that. But I think Roger's really good at the serious stuff. He doesn't get enough credit for the serious stuff. He has lots of little moments through his, his run that were really good so i i think he would have pulled off the, the the crucial scene with tracy at the end and that would have been a weird one seeing roger falling in love when he does it he does it well yeah it's just that they were never interested in giving him that kind of material uh you get the moments throughout his run where something will like hit a nerve with him and you'll get that kind of reaction from him that kind of like wounded reaction and i kind of would like to have seen that here um i think like for me Roger Moore is like the fun experiment. Like I would love to see that movie, but just for like the continuity of it all, like seeing Connery in this movie, especially if they'd made this one after Goldfinger or at least before you only live twice, that could have been really incredible to see for sure. Um, Shayla, do you have any sort of final notes before we wrap up? I do. I have one cool little factoid, I guess. Um, Let's go. Apparently, right? So apparently it was George's idea for a cliff jump with the parachute, um, but they couldn't do it at that time, so they saved it for The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh. I think that's really cool. I, 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 yeah, it was on IDMB, so I hope, or IMDB, uh, so hopefully it's, it's true, but I just thought that was really, really cool. That is awesome. Yeah, I didn't yeah. stumble across that one. And I can certainly see him being up for physically doing it too. That's the sort yeah, of thing totally. I can see Lazenby be like, yeah, I'll do it. Makes sense too, because John Glenn was there. So John Glenn was maybe writing in his notebook, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, he's like, saving that. I'll, I'll do that later. Because <laughs> I know he didn't, I know he, before anyone writes in, I know he didn't direct the spy I love, maybe he shot the, the scene where mm. Bond parachutes yeah. out the cliff. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one there, Shailen. That's a nice one. Um, Stephen, any, any final notes? Um, yeah, I, I think. I'm worried that people will listen to this podcast and think that I don't like this film as much as I do because I really do. Uh, it's it's a, for me it's a it's a film of moments and scenes. I think I I go through it and I think I don't think it's a ten out of ten all the way through, mm. but I think it's it's a film that just suddenly just hits these incredible real peaks of what I would call peak Bond. Um, it's it's littered with all these really nice little small touches. There's so many. Um, just trying to think of one off the top of my head. Like when Bond grabs Tracy's wrist when she's pointing the gun at him. Yes. In the hotel room. He just does it so quickly. And it's the film's got all these little nice little details like 
Bond's eyes don't shift from her. He doesn't look at the gun. He's looking at her the whole time. And little moments like that I love because they, they tell you a lot about Bond's character that he's ready. He's he's efficient when he needs to be. And, and talking about peak Bond, you asked me earlier on for an example of scenes that I like. Um, another one that for me is right, right, right up there is when Bond is escaping his Gloria. Uh, just from when he puts the guy in the cupboard and he's just, oh, I mean, all he's doing really is walking from one along a corridor to, to the end of the building and putting on some skis. It's just majestic. Every time I watch it, I get goosebumps with that sort of saxy music from do, 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 do. and then it kicks into the field. Oh, just brilliant stuff, just peak Bond. So I, I, when I watch this film back now, I can absolutely see why modern Bond creators and writers would would want to go back. I'm not saying they should have went back, but I can see why Chris Nolan would rip off this film. I can see why No Time to Die would think, yeah, that's a film we want to be influenced by. It's, it seems to have had a renaissance, this film, in the last 10 years. When I was growing up, it was something that was not talked about. Mm -hmm. When I was young, it was Connery's Bond, Roger's the silly one, and this Dalton guy is rubbish. I, I never agreed with those, by the way. That's, that's just the attitudes that I, I encountered when I was younger from other Bond fans. And it, but this film wasn't even in the conversation when I was younger. Yeah. And I'm so glad that speaking to Bond fans and Bond nerds now that it's it's so loved. It did puzzle me at first, I have to say. A couple of years ago when I still wasn't up in this film, I couldn't see what everyone else was seeing. And to, to read them saying, oh, yes, it's in my top three. And I would just, what? Above above Roger tossing a plastic nipple in, in the bushes. <laughs> You'd rather watch this. <laughs> You'd rather watch, you'd rather watch this than you know Roger with his nine foot cigar um, fighting Christopher Lee. But now, I get it. I totally get what all the hype is about. It's just that thing that we were talking about earlier that you've all mentioned. It's it's that part of my brain that's thinking, what would this have been like with Peak Sean if Peak Sean was up for it? How good could this have been? Because Lazenby is is good in this for a non actor. He's really solid and. He gets a hard time from some people who criticize his acting, and we've all, all four of us have done that tonight. There are scenes in this that you can watch and see he's not very good in that scene. But when you stop and think, the guy wasn't an actor. So that's like any one of us, all four of us, non-actors. Could you imagine walking on a Bond set tomorrow and carrying an entire production? It's unthinkable. So I think he does deserve credit, and I feel bad for consist my mind consistently thinking, how would Sean have played this scene? What would Sean have brought to that scene? How would how would Dalton have played that scene? But I think that's isn't that part and parcel of being a Bond fan? Don't don't we do that all the time? Don't we don't we watch? I think that's only yeah. natural. I don't think it's something to be um, apologetic for at all. I think it's just something that we all do. We've all tried to put, you know, uh, Pierce Brosnan in Casino Royale. Mm, yeah, we've all we've all wondered about that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and you know, I, I I agree with you actually, Stephen. I think we 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 might have sounded like none of us liked this film because we've critiqued it, but we have said a lot of things we liked about the film too. And ultimately, I mean, as I said, for me, Lazenby Lazenby is the flaw that holds this film back from potentially being, if not Casino Royale, like at least the number two in terms of all Bond films. Um, but that's what. That's what we do with these films. We discuss them ad nauseum on Twitter with each other and, and find new things that we love and find new things that bother us every time we rewatch it. But I think that's the beautiful thing about Bond is that we can jump and genre hop from 1969 trippy 
um, you know, Bond films to like you know Casino Royale, Daniel Craig running through a wall, but they're all in the same <laughs> film series, and that's something to be celebrated. Yeah, and I think like with Lazenby, you just wish he'd done one or two more, because then you could really just look at that era. Whereas when you have just the one single one, then you are tempted to say, well, what if Connery was in this? What if Moore was in this? Because it can be so easily erased when it's one movie. But had he done a trilogy even, you probably wouldn't say that. Good point. Well, what, what about you, Cam? Uh, any final notes? I've got a few I'll just uh, tick off here. Bond sliding on ice is the greatest thing ever. So I have yep. that. Absolutely. Um, we have, I think, first know-it-all Bond, where Am is doing the lepidotry or whatever it's called with the butterflies. And Bond gets in there and starts just, like, outsmarting him. That's something we'll see a lot of going forward. It's, I know it's in Diamonds Are Forever, but Moore was a master of that as well. I love that moment. Um, the scientists throwing a beaker at um, the people at the end when they're, you know, breaking into the compound is incredible. Uh, I would like to know what's going on there. And the blonde helper dude that Bond has, uh, I liked how he never really speaks that much. Just like this guy doing stuff in the background, not something we see usually. Usually they have some sort of personality or some sort of character to them. I like that this guy's just working in the background and he's just a visual. And then just lastly, the guy who falls off the cliff. Beautiful. That dummy oh, falling yeah. for like oh. 30 seconds is incredible. We need more things like that in Bond movies. Please, more dummies being thrown off cliffs. I, I personally love uh, dummies being thrown off cliffs, so I couldn't agree with you more, Cam. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, the only thing I had left then to mention was, and, and, and you know, Stephen's mentioned this a couple of times, was the score. But I just want to talk about the Louis Armstrong song, because I think this is the only Bond song to transcend the, the quote-unquote being a Bond song. This is this is so good that it is just a great song. I mean, it's the only one out of the 25 that I often hear on the radio. I mean, I'll hear like, I don't know, The Living Daylights, For Your Eyes Only, a couple more from time to time. But all the time in the world is is on constantly on, on, on radio stations in the UK. Um, and I, I think it just transcends. Yeah, and you don't have like a traditional Bond song in the credits here. You just have, you know, the score, which is incredible. But... This, you know, Louis Armstrong song is kind of the official Bond song in many ways of this movie. It's also one people wouldn't know as a Bond song. Yeah. And that's the magic of it compared to something like, you know, Goldeneye or Goldfinger, for instance. People know that's to do with a Bond film, whereas people people haven't seen this film. And so mm. when they hear it in this film, they think, oh, they just used it for the film. But no, they this is the Bond song for the film. Is this the only Bond song to be played in two movies? Oh... We've had snippets, like you've got, as we referred to earlier, the janitor whistling, you know, a little bit of Goldfinger, but I think this is it. You've got Mango Tree as well at the start of yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. When he's like really? looking at all of his old stuff, yeah. You can hear underneath the Mango Tree. You hear a little snippet of um, Live and Let Die in The Man with the Golden Gun when we yeah. see when Sheriff Pepper sees Bond, but that's not the full song, that's just a tiny little... Do, 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 do. Yeah, they'll put little like cues, because they do that, you know, when he's going through his... Um, you know, his various souvenirs from past missions in this movie where you're hearing the Thunderball score and stuff like that. But you very rarely get a full song played twice. I think you might be right there, Cam. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll put it out to you guys. If anyone else at home knows the one that we're missing, let us know on Twitter. Um, yeah, I just think this is uh, 
an outstanding song. And if anything, No Time to Die upped my love for this song. I mean, it probably was overused in No Time to Die, but I, I could listen to um, all, all the time in the world and the Honor Majesty Secret Service score uh, anytime. Yeah, and actually they did bring back the um, title music from this movie and played a little snippet of it in No Time to Die. You know, very weird scene where it's just Bond talking to M, but nonetheless, it's there. Wasn't it? Wasn't there some of this film's music in the the trailer for Spectre? Yes. Yeah. Your a slowed down version of the theme was, and and I'm sad because you can't get it anywhere, or I've never come across it. I would love to have it to be able to listen to it all the time because it sounds incredible. We have to raid the Eon archives. Yeah. (laughs) That's got to be out there, right? They couldn't have like hidden it away. I don't know. I haven't found it yet. If anybody can find it, send it my way. (laughs) Uh, There you go. Shayla's put the gauntlet down. Now we have to find it. That's our that's our goal. Um, Radio guys, it's that magic time. Naughty or nice is on Her Majesty's Secret Service making the knock list. We have four votes this week. It could go either way. From by the sounds of it, there's mixed opinions on the film. Shayla, I'm going to put you on the hot seat. You're up first. So for me, I'm going to say yes. It needs to go on the knock list because. It is so underrated, and I think it sh- it needs to be seen, and people need to give it a shot. So I think it deserves to be on the list for that. Okay, I think that's that's fair. Um, Stephen, what about you? Yeah, for me, an easy yes. This film has the gadgets, and it knows how to use them. What I would say is, if you're one of those Bond fans who's on the fence about this film, if you're not really keen on it, then I would urge you to to try it and rewatch it a few times. Which is which is what I did, and I've ended up loving it, and I'm so glad that that I did, because I think with some films you don't like them, and you're not really bothered that you don't like them, but with some films you watch them, and there's a part of you thinking, I want to like this film. Mm. You know, there's everyone's raving about this film. What are they seeing that I'm not? I want to appreciate this film as much as they do, and I made it a mission to fall in love with this film, and I'm so glad that I did. So if you're on the fence, if you can't see past certain aspects of it, just give it a try every now and then. Christmas is coming up. It's the perfect Bond Christmas film. It is. Yeah, that's, 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 that is exactly why we're here. And Cam, I mean, we're, it could go either way still. You you hold the key vote now. For once, you hold the key vote. So yay or nay on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's a big yes for me. I usually rank this one, honestly, about number two or number three when I'm doing Bond rankings. So it's not necessarily a surprise for me to say yes to this one. And I mean... I love sort of those outlier Bond films, the ones that feel a little bit different from those around. And sometimes those are bummers, you know, when you're watching like Casino Royale 67 or Never Say Never Again or something like that. You're like, well, you know, I know I'm going to watch them again, but I'm not getting uh, fireworks out of this one. Whereas like this movie, because it's, you know, Lazenby's only film, it feels tonally very different than most of the movies around it. It kind of feels like a little bit of an outlier, but it's one that I can just watch over and over again. I refer to Thunderball as like my hangout Bond movie, but like this one kind of fits the bill in the same way, but just with a heightened level of technical mastery. And just as the pinnacle of Peter Hunt's probably association with Bond, obviously this is his like sole directing effort with the Bond franchise. And um, just from what I've seen, seems to be the best directed film he ever made so i think just in tribute to peter hunt big yes well i it's uh it's inevitable now i guess uh 
whatever I say is usually useless in general, but definitely useless this week. I'm going to go with a soft no. Ooh. Controversially. Ooh. Um, I love everything about this film except for Bond. And I just can't get past it. And and trust me, I've watched this film. And, and Stephen, I get what you said. Like, if you're hung up on it, give it another watch. I don't, I don't not watch this film. I keep trying. Maybe I haven't hit the magic, you know, ninth watch to really get on board with George Lazenby. <laughs> but um, I'm still on the ropes, and he just doesn't doesn't do it for me when I, when I need him to. And everything else about this film is perfect. I love Tracy, love it. I love. Piz Gloria, I love the cinematography, I love the music. I could talk about it for hours, and frankly, we have. But I just can't get past Bond. And so I would probably... And, and I voted for You Only Live Twice to go onto the knock list, and I think I would rather watch that than this. Interesting. And I have a question for you. Do you love Telly Savalas in this movie? I didn't really speak about that. I, I do love Telly Savalas in this film, I have to say. I think he's a better Blofeld than... Uh, Donald Pleasance. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, just as a physical equal, he works a lot better. And like Shayla, I love the way he smokes his cigarette. <laughs> um, <laughs> to me, though, one thing he's always missing, though, is like kind of some idiosyncratic quirk, the way that like Pleasance has it or that, um, you know, Christoph Waltz brought to it. Like there's like a little bit of crazy missing from his Blofeld. Yeah, he does seem to have his his uh, his shiz together. His chickens in a row. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yeah! Boom! Perfect! Perfect! Yeah. Although his plan of like becoming a count by like taping back his earlobes or whatever is insane. So maybe that's the crazy. Yeah, we didn't really get into the whole uh, the whole like checking if he's a count and, and actually performing cosmetic surgery on himself, which is another strange thing about this film that uh, doesn't really make a lot of sense, but. I, I, I'm glad it's making the knock list because I think it should be on there. I just felt like I had to use my vote to express what I felt about it, really, and, and mostly because it was pointless. So, <laughs> but uh, but there you go, folks. On Her Majesty's Secret Service is getting on the knock list. Congratulations to George Lazenby. I'm sure he'll be thrilled. Stephen, go ahead. Can I can I ask you a quick yeah, just a quick question for you there? So you voted a soft no there when you knew that we were all in. What would you have done if there was five of us and there was two yeses and two noes? Would you still have voted no or would you have went for the yes because you wanted it in there? That's an absolutely solid question. I'm genuinely surprised Cam didn't ask it. Um, I would have voted yes. Right. I, I'll be honest. I think there's a lot of... I, I said it. There's so much great about this film except for Bond for me. Yeah. And that's what that's what stops it from being in my top five now. And, and not that You Only Live Twice is in my top five either. Um, I just find that to be a more enjoyable film to watch than this. Um, but I I don't think I would... I don't think I would like it if it wasn't on the knock list. I don't think the knock list would be complete if it was a miss. See, I completely get where you're coming from. Like What you're saying makes absolute sense to me because you can watch a Bond film and, and like it despite a bad villain or a, a duff gangster, uh, sorry, henchman or a Bond girl you don't quite click with, but for someone who doesn't like George in this film or his performance, that, that's quite a big barrier. I can I totally get that because it's Bond. He's the center of the movie. He's the anchor. And if you can't get past him, it, it's, yeah, I, I totally understand why, why you would feel that way if you're not with him. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. 
which, which is a shame because I really love frilly shirts. <laughs> and kilts. <laughs> and kilts. Yeah, I love kilts. Um, well, there you go, folks. On Her Majesty's Secret Service is officially going on the nice list and it is not receiving a lump of coal this Christmas. Um, well, Cam, before we wrap up, I want to say thank you to our wonderful guests, Shayla, Stephen. Thank you both for taking the time to join us and, and celebrate Christmas with us over here on Spy Hards. Um, Shayla, you first. Where can people find more from you? Um, I have a YouTube show called Sweet Time with Shayla and Chelsea. So you can go to sweettimeshow.com if you want to check that out. Um, we just do like fun crafts and, and just like what what do we do i don't even know just mostly crafts i guess and like hang out stuff. You, <laughs> yeah we just chill. hang out yeah. we have fun we try to make people laugh and then if you want to come talk to me i'm on twitter um under uh shaylay s-h-a-y-l-a-y-y yeah you can actually find a link to that below uh under the t-shirt that's in the red bubble store which shayla designed oh yes yes what does vargas do mm -hmm. we, we've still not figured it out many months <laughs> post um, and, and Stephen, where can people find more from you? Just, just before I answer that question, Sheila, was, was your sweet time, was that, is it named after that immense show from the nineties, Sweet Valley High with the greatest theme tune of all time? Is that why, is there any link there? <laughs> no, I just thought it was a cute name. Cause like, I want people to spend their sweet time with us. So sweet time with Sheila ah, and Chelsea. Thank okay. you for spending your sweet time with us. You know? <laughs> Got you. Right. Okay. Do any of you guys know Sweet Valley High? Do anyone remember it? No. I've never seen it, but I know what it is. Yeah. Uh, I'm the same as Cam. Yeah. I've never seen it, but I know what it is. I've, I've never seen it, nor do I know what it is. <laughs> it was this really naff teen show in the nineties with two twins and one was smart and one was the school hottie and it, it, it was rubbish. But if you were a young teenager, you watched it and it had this really addictive theme song. And I don't know why I'm talking about it right now. <laughs> It's, it's clearly it's clearly quarter past midnight here in the uk Stephen and i are slowly drifting to sleep so uh it's a perfect time to wrap up but Stephen, where can people find more from you uh, i'm on the bbc radio scotland every month or so reviewing films and if you want to find me on twitter i'm just gonna have to look up because i can't remember my own handle it is at the naked pun if you like cringy Bond memes that someone else will then reuse a month later and get five times the likes and retweets. <laughs> come and come and find me there. The <laughs> amount of times. That's why I've started putting our logo on stuff now. It's ridiculous. It happens. Occupational hazard. I, I, you just see him on Twitter and, and you see him on like Facebook a month later. It's it's so silly. It is what it is. Ah, but no, I recommend um, following both uh, Shayla and Stephen. Stephen's memes are legendary on uh, on Bond Twitter. So uh, absolutely. Uh, legendary for being awful, don't worry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but thank you both for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The, radio, the radioactive lint is in the post. <laughs> <laughs> Did that ever get resolved? No. <sighs> Strange moment. No. No. Well, there you go, folks. On Imagine Secret Service has made the knock list, and as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. But Cam, what are we doing next week? Yes, we have a special interview with Yvonne Zima, who played Gina Davis's daughter in The Long Kiss Goodnight. We are not doing a regular episode next week because of Christmas and what have you, but we are not going to leave you guys empty-handed. The stocking will be attended to. You will have an interview, and it's a darn good one. Yeah, we thought we'd keep the, uh, the Christmas cheer going, and 
Yvonne was really gracious with her time. We had a, at least an hour where we chatted all about uh, working with Samuel L. Jackson, working with Gina Davis. And it's a really wonderful chat, so we're hoping you guys will enjoy it. And then we'll be back in the new year with a very special episode. That's right. Um, there you go, folks. Well, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we speak to Yvonne Zimmer. If you want to support the show, check us out on patreon.com slash where you can find our exclusive Agents in the Field episodes where we tackle the non-spy movies of our favorite spy actors, as well as our monthly film commentaries. We've just had our GoldenEye film commentary drop, and I believe we have a new one coming in a couple of weeks, Cam. Yes, the Ipcris file is coming soon. I didn't love the film we visited the first time. Maybe it's grown on me on the next viewing. We will find out. You can, of course, find out more about The Knocklist at letterbox.com slash spyhards. You can find out all the films that made it on and the films that didn't. Do not forget, of course, to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, we have all the time in the world. 